Well, we're in 1 John uh, 2 this morning. If you have a Bible, if you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. You can get one at the end of the service as you walk out. And uh, we'll be covering verses 15 through 27, so I encourage you to turn there with me. Uh, while you're turning there, let me just share with you this, this passage that we're in really ate my lunch this week. It was very, very challenging. Um, it's, it's weighty, very weighty, very intense. Um, it seems like there's a lot more law than gospel, and so as I'm getting into this, you know, sometimes in sermon prep, by God's grace, I sit down with my notebook and the text and begin to work and, and things just flow naturally and, and they're easy to outline and easy to interpret and, and I praise God for those weeks. And at other times, uh, it's, it's a real labor, it's a very difficult challenge and uh, that was the case this week. But there is hope in this passage, we're going to see it uh, as we get uh, to the end of it. I don't know if you've ever been deceived can't imagine that you haven't been. I mean, most of us have been deceived at some point. Have you ever had uh, someone promise things to you that you would later find out they had no intention of delivering on? Have you ever had someone present themselves to you as a certain way or as a certain type of person and then only to discover that that's not at all uh, who they actually are? Have you ever had someone who has sort of given you a line or, or, or sold you a bill of goods, so to speak, and, and they've tried to get something out of you that you really didn't want to give, but they were just so persistent that they deceived you? If you've ever been deceived, and, and I know that some of you have. I know some of you have been deceived in, in horrible, evil ways. You share that with me. And I know some of you have had people that you love who have been deceived. Maybe it's elderly parents or grandparents who have given money to a con man, just sent money to someone that they didn't know. Or maybe you have a teenage son or daughter who's been coaxed into doing something that wasn't for their good. If you've ever been deceived, you know how painful it can be. If you've ever been tricked or duped or hoodwinked or someone has just sort of pulled a fast one on you, you know, again, how devastating this can be. Well, as we get into this passage this morning from John, again, this letter, this little letter toward the end of the New Testament written by John, who was a, a great friend of Jesus, who was a disciple of Jesus, who was uh, invited into experiences that very few uh, would ever enjoy. Well, John writes this passage we're in this morning because he wants to prevent Christians from being deceived in the worst way imaginable. He wants to prevent them from being spiritually deceived. In fact, John provides for us his purpose for this part of the letter at the end of this section. He writes in chapter 2, verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So like a, a, a good guide on a long hike and uh, taking us kind of through the wilderness, John will say, I know that path over there looks really appealing but don't go in that direction. It's, it leads to death. Or I know that there's a trail over there that looks really inviting to you and, and you're inclined to go in that direction, but don't go that way because it makes promises that it doesn't deliver on. And so again, like this good guide on a long, beautiful hike, what John does is warn his readers and us about all the pitfalls that surround them. He says, don't veer off in this direction. Deception lurks all around us. So be very alert. Now, who's trying to deceive these early Christians and, and are they still at work? And how are they going about their efforts to deceive? In other words, 
What tactics will they employ to try to trick and con and deceive God's people? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, Who's trying to deceive and how are they doing so? And how does John advise his readers and us by extension to resist, to stand strong against this deception? So uh, 1 John, again, chapter 2 We're going to cover 15 through 27, but let me start by reading verses 15 through 17. Here reads the word of the Lord. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, I want to pause there because this is really important that we understand uh, the words that are being used here. There aren't a lot of Greek words that, that are you know, kind of known by everyone, um, but there are a few. And one of those is the Greek word cosmos. In English, we say cosmos. And it's the word that is translated world. Now, this particular word appears, cosmos, appears 185 times in the New Testament and 78 times uh, by John himself. And it's very important to note that the word world is used in a variety of different ways. In fact, believe it or not, the single word world is used in 10 different ways in the New Testament. And if we don't understand how it's being used, then we can't possibly understand the New Testament teaching. And so, I'm not going to give you all 10 of those, you're probably thankful for that, but I want to at least give you a few, let me give you four different ways that the word world is used. And remember when I do this, there's still six others. So, sometimes the word world refers to all physical creation. So, when world is used in that way, it's referring to everything that God has made. So, plants and trees animals and humans, you know, seas, mountains, skies, uh, all these things. So it refers to the, to the totality of God's creation. And when, when the word world is used in that way, it's actually something that God loves and something that we are commanded to love ourselves. Going all the way back to the creation account, this, this, this world that God has made, that he delights in, that he himself said, as we recited by way of catechism today, is very good. We're called to love the world, all of God's physical creation. And indeed, part of the creation mandate is to fill it out to all the cultural possibilities. So that's one use of world. Now, sometimes the word world refers to all humanity. So every single person Uh, that exists. In in his high priestly prayer, in a bit of a controversial statement, Jesus says to the Father, in in front of his disciples, he said, I'm not praying, he said, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus says, I'm not praying for all of humanity at this moment. I'm actually praying for those, uh, Father, that you have given me. I'm praying for the elect, the ones that you gave me. Now, sometimes the word world is used uh, to refer to a group of people. We might say a a subset of humanity. Uh, In John 12, when Jesus had incited the ire of the religious leaders, uh, we read this. 
So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Now they say, look, the world has gone after him. Well, he's not talking about, of course, the stars and the moon and physical creation. Um, he can't, they can't possibly mean all humanity. What they're referring to is a group within Jerusalem, the group at Bethany, and they've all, they're all following uh, Jesus. So again, this is a, a group of people or a subset of humanity. So there are three uses uh, of the word world. Well, a fourth use appears in this passage and really throughout the New Testament, particular John, particularly John's writings. And here the word world is used to refer to a belief system that rejects God and all that God approves. So this is what John is referring to in this passage. The world apart from Christ, the world outside of Christ, has a particular way of thinking and reasoning and believing and judging. And this is what John's talking about here. So the world, apart from Christ, has a particular value system, you might say, a particular ethical system. And what John warns is, if a person loves the world in that sense, if a person embraces the world's way of thinking, the world's ideologies and philosophies and convictions and values, then he or she cannot really love God. God will not accept a divided love. Devotion to the world's philosophies and ideologies is incongruent with faithfulness to God. Now, let me get a little more specific here. The world apart from Christ has a certain way of viewing and defining very important human realities. Marriage and family, sexuality and gender, human personhood, reproduction, the sanctity of human life, even the meaning and purpose of life. So the world, this is what John means here by that word, has a belief system that includes convictions about all these things that I mentioned. So the world has a certain way of defining what marriage and family represent. The world has a particular way of, of, of understanding a, a particular value system as it relates to sex and sexuality and, and human relationships. The world has a particular way of viewing uh, the sacredness of human life or when life, when personhood begins and, and even the meaning and person, person, uh, purpose of life. And, and John says, if you embrace the world's way of believing, which, which by the way is constantly changing, you, you see this. You do not know God. If anyone loves the world, the belief system, the value system of the world apart from Christ, the love of the Father is not in him. So the world's belief system may look progressive. It may appear to be freeing. It may look appealing. It may even look in some ways loving, but... It is not of God, nor is it profitable, nor is it all of the things that it claims to be. It is, John says, the way of death. The world, John warns, these beleaguered believers, is trying to deceive you. Don't buy into it. Now, how, how so? Well, here's our first point this morning. The world deceives by way of seduction. So what in the world do you mean by that? Well... Notice John says, do not love the world or the things of the world. He doesn't say, do not accept the things of the world. 
He doesn't say do not agree with the things of the world. They could have said those things. Certainly they would have been viable. But he says do not love the world. He addresses the heart rather than the head. John knows that he knows what the world appeals to, the longings of our heart. So the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, the, the, the pride of life, these are those longings and tendencies that, that coincide, with, coincide with fallen humanity and are apart from the influence of God's sanctifying work. So things like illicit sexual pleasure, adultery, gluttony, drunkenness, addiction, lust, envy, greed, uh, the need to make a name for ourselves, the need to prove that we're right, the need to be respected. These all fit in those categories uh, that John's referring to. And those things actually appeal to us because they seem to promote happiness. Why does anyone engage in sex outside of marriage? Or drunkenness, or gluttony, or excessive spending, or pornography? Because they believe that these actions will deliver something they're missing. These things that are in the world, verse 16, seem to, seem to offer what everyone wants. Pleasure, fulfillment, happiness, peace, purpose, all of these things. But they never, ever deliver. Now, again, let's think about this in very practical terms. Um, and I realize that when this goes, this is posted online, I, I'm, I'm, accept, I'm accepting and expecting the feedback that I may get. But I want to think about this in very practical terms. Imagine that a person is dealing with anxiety or fear or self-loathing or a deep sense of sadness or depression or conflict. Well, because the world has a certain value system, a certain way of viewing and defining these very important human realities and institutions, the world might through secular therapy, offer this solution. Maybe you're unhappy because you're not living according to your true self. Maybe you're not the same gender that your body is. Maybe the problem is you've been living as a woman when actually you're a man. That might be the solution that's proposed. Or maybe you're married, but you're not supposed to be married. You're not designed, you're not wired to be married. And so maybe the problem is you need to get rid of your husband or wife. Or maybe you've suppressed your, your true identity because of the religious teachings of, of your parents. Or maybe you've been told whom you can love, and maybe you've been loving the wrong people. So rather than dealing with the real issues, which are always in part spiritual, now they're not, they're, they're rarely exclusively spiritual, but they're always spiritual on some level, rather than dealing with the real issues, the world throws out its, quote, progressive, uh, forward-thinking solutions, which sadly devastate, destroy, and make things worse in the long run. Many of us have friends family members or people that we love who are being told these things that I just said. That's the counsel they received. And our hearts break for them because we know we're, they're, they're being deceived. They're being seduced by the world. And we know that the world's philosophies, to quote John here, are passing away. They lead to death. The values and solutions that the world promotes 
may seem rewarding on the outside, fulfilling, freeing, affirming, whatever, but they're seductive. And they lead to despair and destruction. As one theologian writes, all that is antithetical to God and His grace is passing away. It is doomed. There is no future in worldliness. Now, we might be inclined to think, yes, absolutely. The problem is the big bad world, the world out there. And I'm so glad that I've not been sucked in. Well, lest we think the problem is simply out there or something that, that sins that other people struggle with, let me give you some, some diagnostic questions to consider if maybe you're loving the world and the things of the world. This letter, by the way, is, has a very sort of diagnostic feel to it. Um, and so let me give you some questions that hopefully will, will, will expose the reality that we all in some ways are loving the things of the world. So here's the first one. Does financial growth appeal to you more than growth in godliness? Now, that's a convicting question, isn't it? It's convicting for me. What would excite me more, to grow in Christ's likeness or to see my overall net worth uh, increase drastically? The answer will give us an indication of whether we love the things of the world or the things of God, which is more important to us. Here's another one. When, what do you wake up to in the morning? What wakes you up in the morning uh, thinking about? What drives you? Is it the pursuit of God, the things of God, or is it the things the world can offer? Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that we can't get excited about God's good gifts. We should be excited. We should be grateful. Um, the good gifts that he's created for our enjoyment. I went to uh, Chipotle the other day on Thursday, and I spent all morning uh, in this passage studying. And, and when I got there, when I got to the counter, they were just taking off uh, the grill some fresh chicken. And they were cutting it up, and they were putting it in the, into the pan to, the serve, to serve, and it was still just steaming hot. And I was so happy about it. I mean, I was, I was just absolutely thrilled. I like, food, I like food that's hot and fresh, and I was, just, I was just thrilled by it. And then when I sat down, I was kind of convicted, to be honest with you. I thought, am I unreasonably happy that my food is hot and fresh? This is what went through my mind. Is this an unhealthy obsession and I had in my mind one time when uh, this was a part of a different church and leading a group a different group of staff members but we had this we had a big staff meeting and there were a whole bunch of there and people there and and I asked a guy to pray and he prays he's praying he thanked God that the food was hot and fresh and I thought that's kind of an odd thing to say and so I said like I mean thanks for praying like why, why did you pray he said I know that's really really important to you Okay, I've, something's wrong here. Like, if, when people think about me, the first thing they think of is that I like hot, fresh food. But, I, but I thought, as I sat down, I thought, I don't know. I mean, is this an unhealthy obsession that I have here? It's not. I mean, yeah, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the things that God has created. Um, that, that, that's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But is that really what we wake up thinking about? The, the, thing, the created things rather than the creator? Here's another question. Do you go to great lengths to avoid looking foolish or being rejected for your faith? Now, this could indicate an ungodly concern about being accepted by, by the world. Those who embrace God's revelation, His Word, His Holy Scriptures, the teaching of Jesus, Jesus, will necessarily be at odds with the world in the way that John uses the, the term here. 
you will look foolish to the world. If you believe the teachings of Jesus, if you believe what we call the biblical ethic, if you embrace that, you will look foolish to the world. And for those who love the world, that's just unacceptable. Looking foolish to the world will not do. And just to give you an idea of how much the world has changed, when I first got into pastoral ministry a little over two decades ago, when I would preach on passages like, um, all who love Christ will suffer, you know, some of the Pauline sayings, when I would preach, and even Jesus, when he says that all men will hate you because of me, this idea that being a Christian will necessarily involve suffering. When I preached on those passages, I, I really believed them. I never doubted the veracity of those things, but I had a really hard time actually seeing how that related to us in North America. I mean, I really could not see how that applied to us. But I have to tell you, uh, it's easy to see now. It's easy to see. Because if you hold fast to biblical convictions, you will be regarded as a fool by some. How can you say it's not right to do this? How can you say that it's not this person's choice to do this? How can you say that God cares about who a person loves or marries? That's absolutely ridiculous, you might be told. If you believe certain things are wrong, you will be ridiculed. Assign names and you will be rejected by some. And, and by the way, you know this already, there's tremendous pressure on our young adults to embrace the world's belief system. Tremendous pressure. And the rejection they will suffer ought to fill us with compassion and compel us to pray for them and to lead them and to walk alongside them with grace and courage. And let me just say to our students and young adults, if you have friends or classmates who are trying to persuade you, trying to coax you into believing these unbiblical views about sex or relationships or personhood or human life. And let me just say, I feel for you. I know it's got to be hard. And I know that it will bring about suffering. And I want you to know that you have a church family. You have a family, a church family, including elders and leaders who are praying for you and, and, and who want to walk alongside you in this journey. The easiest thing would be to cave. That's the easiest thing, to agree for the sake of peace. But what you arrive at when you give in is not real peace, it's fake peace. It's not real peace. And by agreeing, it will put you on a path down a road that will turn upside down everything that's good. So there's one more diagnostic question. Who is your ultimate moral authority? Who determines for you what's right and wrong? Is it popular opinion? cultural trends, the loudest uh, voices, the Kardashians. Who is it that determines for you what's right and wrong? If you're over 40, who are the Kardashians? Well, you can ask somebody when you leave. Um, now, there are other questions for sure. There are other questions, diagnostic questions for sure. Those are starting points. So as we've seen, the world is a system of beliefs that runs counter to what God says and what God approves, and the world deceives by way of seduction. But there is at every point in history people in the world who particularly embody and even seek to enforce that world's philosophy. Look at 18 through uh, 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, 
they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you, have all, you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. That what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If, you. if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in Him. So you can see, as I read that, uh, why it is a challenging uh, passage. If you grew up in, in certain traditions, like the one that I grew with, up in, you were, and you were subjected to movies like Left Behind and, and other, other scare tactics, um, you, you grew up being told that there's this one charismatic, uh, you know, incredibly evil uh, person who would come at the end and would be the Antichrist who would, who would usher in the apocalyptic, you know, era. Um, and, and that's what, of course, a lot of the movies that happened at about that time and, and a lot of the teaching centered on and there were entire churches where every Sunday was about end times and so on. And certainly, and certainly, the Apostle Paul does talk about a future man, singular man of lawlessness, whose identity many have tried to figure out over the years, would it be a global ambassador, an American president, a pope? Who's going to be this, this, this antichrist that will come at the end? Well, here in 1 John 2, John talks about antichrist uh, without a definite article, and then many antichrists. The last hour is the time between Jesus' first coming, his birth, and his return. We're living in the last days. We're living during the last hour, so to speak. And in that period that we're currently living in, that we will continue to live in until Christ returns, there will be many, many antichrists who will come and point to the final, ultimate antichrist, again, who will come at the end. Now, what do these antichrists want to do? Deceive God's people, verse 26. And how will these antichrists attempt to do that? By denying the Father and the Son, verse 22. More specifically, according to John's second letter, these antichrists deny that Jesus is the Christ, the God-man sent by the Father. In fact, John, 2 John 7, we read, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Who are they? Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Those who deny that Christ was sent by the Father. Uh, he was fully human, fully God. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So what he's saying is anyone who denies that Jesus was sent by the Father, anyone who denies that Jesus was fully human while at the same time being fully God is an antichrist. It's not just some future international man of mystery, but anyone who teaches false doctrine, namely who espouses a deficient view of Jesus Christ, 
is an antichrist and a false teacher who is out to, to deceive. So here's what I'm saying. The, the antichrist, and there will be many, John says, these are nothing more or nothing less than the false teachers of every age who deny the deity and humanity of Jesus, and they are out to deceive. How are they out to deceive? Here's our second point. False teachers deceive by way of subversion. So the word subversion, to subvert, it just means to undermine something in an attempt to ruin it entirely. So we've already seen the world deceives through seduction. If you believe what we believe, if you embrace our values, if you share our, or our convictions, then you will experience freedom and true life and all of these things. So the world deceives, tries to deceive by, by way of seduction. But false teachers, on the other hand, they attempt to deceive through subversion. In other words, they chisel away at the very foundations of the Christian faith. And of course, where would they start? At the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ himself. Now, false teachers have different motives. That is to say, um, those who teach false views about Jesus do, for, do so for different reasons. And, and, and I'm not going to list the denominations or the other uh, churches or faith practices, but just think about this. Think about all the different religions, so to speak, uh, who have differing views about Jesus, faulty and deficient views about Jesus. John is saying that those who believe such things are actually under the category of Antichrist. But these false teachers have different motives. Some are trying to establish a reputation for themselves. And so, you know, how does someone, if you want a, if you want a really big platform, if you want a really big uh, online following, how do you do that? Well, you come up with something new that nobody else has ever thought about, right? And so some of these false teachers are trying to establish their own, you know, build their own kingdom or their own platform. And so they, they come up with different views about who Jesus is. Some of those uh, false teachers are actually genuinely deceived themselves. So they have been duped by someone else. And I think there are others who actually mean well, they mean well, they think that what they're teaching is for the common good or for, for a better humanity. But any teaching that rejects the historic Christian doctrine, that is to say, to use apostolic language, the once for all deposit of faith passed down from generation to generation, um, anyone who rejects the t clear teaching about Christ is actually a false teacher. And John says we shouldn't be surprised to consider them in the category of the Antichrist. So what do we do about this? Well, I mean, just in terms of practical, I think practically it means that, uh, that churches need a plurality of godly, humble, well-trained elders. This is why, just to be frank with you, I'm, I'm really burdened for the number of Southern Baptist churches that don't have elders. Really, really burdens me. Um, I think it means that we, we watch carefully what we read and who we listen to. I'm not saying we, only, we can only read people that we agree with 100% or, you know, I, I read broadly and I'm sure that many of you read broadly, but I think we have to be very careful testing everything we read against the scriptures. 
And if someone, I don't care how charismatic they are, how beautiful they are, how many followers they have, if they're, if they're saying something that contradicts God's revelation, the Holy Scriptures, then we reject what they're saying out of hand. It may mean for some, and this is going to sound really hard, but it may mean for some establishing different friendships, separating from those people who are constantly trying to fill our minds with unbiblical philosophies. It definitely means that we pray for wisdom, courage, humility, and love. This is an old problem that's not going away, by the way. In 1970, Oz Guinness wrote, so this is 50 plus years ago, there have always been false prophets who have gained their livelihood from the church while they have chiseled away at its cornerstones. Some have done so for profit, resorting to deception, falsehood, and other unethical practices. Others have had better motives and have tried to justify their actions on the basis of superior knowledge, changing times, concern for improving the lot of mankind. Whatever the reasons, the results are the same. True religion, and really anytime the word religion was used 1960s-ish and before, it's not used, it's used to, to refer to Christianity in, in a good sense. True religion suffers and apostasy comes followed by God's judgment on his unfaithful church. Apostasy refers to a, a turning away from the faith by those who once professed Jesus as Savior and Lord. And this is exactly what's happened to many of these believers, many in the churches to which John writes. There are some of the churches that John addresses who were at one point on fire for Jesus. And they were all about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And then they started to listen to these false teachers and they were led away from the church and even the Christian faith. Verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have, had, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now the wording is a bit, a bit circular here. There's a lot of prepositions. But what John is saying is that those who are now anti-Christ, this is incredible. Those who are now anti-Christ, those teaching false doctrine about Jesus, were once members of the Christian community. They were once part of the church. They left the church and abandoned the faith altogether, and they persuaded some to join them. But by their departure, John says, they revealed they actually never truly belonged to us. To say that they never belonged to us is another way of saying that even though they had joined the congregation, even though they were participating in the life of the church, they had never really been converted. They had never been brought to a place of, of repentance and saving faith. I get asked all the time, one of my, I've never really kept a catalog of this, but one of the most frequently asked questions that I get, and I got it within the last two weeks, is can a true Christian lose his or her salvation? And the biblical witness on this is abundantly clear. Abundantly clear. No, not a chance. There's not a chance. God keeps those who are His. It's not because the people that, that the Christians are so strong and so resolute in their commitment. It's because God is always faithful to bring to salvation, complete salvation, and to glory those that He saves. God keeps those who belong to him. But it's also critical to point out that God keeps those who are, who are his through a vital connection 
to the church. So, yes, God keeps those who are his, and there are means that he employs, and one of the means is, maybe one of the central means, is the believing community of the church. So John's already said in this letter, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses, cleanses us from all sin. So to be a Christian means to walk in the light. And to walk in the light, John says, is to walk with others, other believers, who are striving for the same thing. If you're not part of a church, you're not walking in the light as he is in the light, in fellowship with one another, which means that you are by definition walking in darkness, which is not where Christ is. So again, we have all these stern warnings. The world deceives by way of seduction. False teachers deceive by way of subversion. When we ask the question, is there any encouragement in this passage? Well, John says in verse 20, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. The Holy One is the Holy Spirit. And the anointing is a setting apart by God for his pleasure and purposes. This is why if there's someone sick in the church, the elders are called to pray, to anoint with oil and pray. And we do this. We anoint them with oil. There's no magic power in the oil. It's not mystical. Or, but what we're doing is we're setting apart that person for, for God's special care and healing. And so to be anointed means to be set apart by God for his pleasure and purpose. And John says in verse 27, the anointing you have received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. It doesn't mean that Christians don't need to be taught. It doesn't mean that if someone comes and tries to teach you, you can say, look, I, the Holy Spirit's already taught me everything I need to know. That's not what, what John's saying. He, we might say it a different way. You have, no, you have no need that anyone else should teach you. That's the way to understand this. In other words, the false teachers who are coming along with this special knowledge and this special insight and this unique view of Jesus, you don't need for them to teach you because you've already been taught by the apostles and anointed by the Holy Spirit. You have been taught the truth and the Holy Spirit has confirmed that truth to you. What these false teachers are saying to you, you already know better. You don't need them to teach you. So don't be discouraged by those around you who are falling away. Even though you thought they were brothers, there will always be those who seem to be on fire for Jesus. And you may have someone in your mind right now. But later down the road, they reject the church. They reject Christ. It just means that they were never truly born again. To a group of Christians who were watching their friends leave the church and turn on them, John had this to say, which was so encouraging. Here's our final point this morning. The Holy Spirit illumines the minds and preserves the faith of all genuine believers. At the heart of Christianity is the gospel invitation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, to be reconciled to God. At the heart of the Christian faith is the announcement that Christ has died for our sins and that those who believe on him will be forgiven and made new for all the ways that we love the world and all the ways that we have loved the things of the world. Those ungodly affections are, are the things that Christ died for. For all the ways that we cling to our own wisdom and goodness, Jesus Christ has died for those sins so that nothing need to prevent us from being made right with God through Christ. 
Jesus himself loved God wholly and perfectly, and his record of love is actually ours by faith. So you may think as you, you reflect on those diagnostic questions, you thought, man, I'm really failing in this area, and I've really failed in this area, and I'm really concerned about this area. Well, the good news is all the ways that you and I have failed, in all the ways, Christ was perfectly obedient, perfectly successful, so to speak, and his perfect record is ours by faith. And everyone is invited to receive this forgiveness, despite any past sin. Even, get this, even false teachers who repent and believe are completely and totally forgiven. But not everyone will accept this offer of forgiveness. In fact, most won't. Most will dig in their heels and insist that they know what's best. They know the best way how to live. They don't have best how to live their life. They have the insight, the right way to live. Some will leave the church and some will remain. But what will be true about both groups is they will not receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But those who have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, set apart for God's pleasure and purpose, will receive the truth. They will believe the truth. The Holy Spirit will enable them to. And their faith will remain because the Holy Spirit will keep them. The same one who enabled us to have faith by the supernatural work of regeneration will preserve our faith till the end. The same one who convicted us of our sin, Jesus said this is why the Holy Spirit was sent into the world, one reason, will be the one who guides us into truth and illumines our mind to the truth and will make it possible and certain that we remain in the truth. The same one who brought us to Christ will guarantee that we continue to abide in Christ, wherein there is joy and peace and purpose and meaning and all the things the world promises to give us but fails to deliver on are found completely and totally in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.